Before we get going, here's the bit where I remind you that nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. And now, on with the show. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Grant Williams Podcast. Joining me this time around is a gentleman from Australia, Matt Barry, is the CEO of Freelancer.com. And I recently saw Matt give a keynote presentation in Sydney that took my breath away. You know, many regular listeners to this show and people who've read my writing over the years understand that I have a keen focus on Australia as one of the places that when the housing market there finally goes poof, we are going to see some real fireworks. And so to see Matt lay out the story of Australia in really quite confronting detail was a fabulous thing for me to see. And so I approached him and he very kindly agreed to come and tell that story on this podcast. And I'm hoping that uh, it brings some perspective to any of those among you who haven't really been paying any close attention to Australia other than the headlines. So without any further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Matt Barry. Matt, welcome to the podcast. I'm so pleased that we found time to do this with our time zone differences. I'm thrilled to talk to you, Grant. It's, uh, you know, I introduced this at the, at the top of the show. I, I saw the speech you gave at the Sydney 2050 Day, uh, I guess, what, a month, two months ago now? And it's a subject that's near and dear to my heart, but even I was absolutely blown away by, A, the quality of that presentation, and B, just the broad swathe of statistics in there that kind of brought a lump to your throat, and not in a good way, at the very beginning of the thing and just kept its grip around your throat the whole way through. So we're going to get into that shortly. But before we do, what I'd love for you to do, if you could, is just kind of give a, a bit of a potted history of your career for those listening outside Australia, uh, where you're not quite such a household name. I'm the chief executive of freelancer.com, which is the world's largest freelancing marketplace for getting jobs done online. Anything you think of, there's about 67 million people in that marketplace. Uh, I run that business somewhat uh, simultaneously with escrow.com, which is a a payments business for buying expensive and complicated items in a, in a freight marketplace called Loadshift. Um, my career has been in technology uh, pretty much all the way through. I've got degrees in engineering, computer science and physics. I went to Stanford where I studied engineering in the dot-com boom in 97, 98. Um, went briefly at venture capital and came back and started a, effectively a fabulous semiconductor company, which ultimately sold to Intel before I started freelancer. And I've also been an adjunct professor at the University of Sydney in entrepreneurship and also, ironically, cryptography uh, for many years, which I stopped a few years ago. Timing is everything, as they say. Well, listen, let's talk about this Sydney Summit because um, they obviously invited you to speak and um, I've given plenty of these talks and they always like to know what you're going to talk about and what the presentation is going to be around. How did that whole process go? Because, you know, you could hear a pin drop in that room once you actually got up to speak. It was, it was very interesting. Uh, so Fairfax is owned by Nine and it's one of the two major media companies in the country. And um, they contacted me last year sometime and said, we're going to do a symposium on Sydney 2050. So what are the challenges and the opportunities for Sydney in 2050, a number of years from now? And I thought, well, I kind of run a tech company. I, occasionally I do write articles that are, I, I kind of bring back, bringing back sort of long form journalism. Once a year, I kind of publish a very long article on a particular topic like the Australian economy or you know, some other sort of semi-political issue. And um, they ring me up and said, we'd like you to be the opening keynote. 
And I said to myself, well, okay, let me think about it for a little bit. Uh, why would I actually be relevant? It's been a little while since I wrote an article on a, on a particular topic. And the, the organizer said, well, I've seen you do opening keynotes before at conferences and it's good because you kind of just say what you think and you don't hold back and, you know, it gets the people yeah, talking about the conference. And this conference was a $1,300 a ticket conference where primarily consultants to government turned up to feature for business and so forth. But you had the productive commissioner speak and the CEO of the Opera House and the ministers and the premier and so forth. And I went away to think about it. And it was actually quite a funny situation because I was, you know, I usually work fairly late um, here at Freelancer and it's about nine o'clock and I thought, oh, gee, I better go home and let's see if I can eat on the way home. So I went to uh, Victoria Street, which is one of the great eat streets in Sydney, or at least used to be uh, near King's Cross where the nightlife district was. And I walked into the Tropicana Cafe at nine o'clock. Sorry, kitchen's closed. I thought, oh, okay, I'll go to the next restaurant, which is the next restaurant. Sorry, kitchen's closed. Next one, sorry, kitchen closed. I was thinking to myself, I swear these restaurants in Sydney used to shut at 10, 10 o'clock, not, not, not nine o'clock. And right. I thought, okay, well, I'll go to the locals, Betty's Burgers to get a burger. And I walked in and they said, sorry, uh, restaurant's closed at 9.11. So I tweeted, what does it take to get a meal in Sydney before nine o'clock these days? And the, the replies came in thick and fast and they're actually quite funny. Uh, one was an alarm clock to kind of so you can wake up earlier. Another was a sledgehammer so you can break in somewhere, uh, get a taxi and maybe you'll find a McDonald's. And the best response I thought was a time machine back 15 or 20 years. And that kind of hit me. I thought to myself, you know what? This city has changed dramatically because back in 2000, we had the Sydney Olympics. It really was an electric time. You know, the nightlife was, was amazing. We really thought that the, country, the city was emerging to be an international city uh, by virtue of that, the country in many different ways, getting on the world stage. And it really feels like everything has gone backwards in a long way. So I agreed to give the keynote. And then the funny thing at the time is the premier, Dominic Perrottet, who was from the Conservative Party, apparently said to the conference organizers, okay, no problem. I bet if Matt's going to speak, push it back to after the election, which happened only a couple of months ago. So they pushed back the conference to, to this year and uh, Dominic Perrottet actually lost the election. And then Chris Means got in and I got up and gave my opening keynote and it was, it was, it was kind of interesting because you obviously had a, had a room full of you know, government officials and consultants to government and obviously Fairfax. And to an extent, I went off the reservation because I think I don't think that um, the editor of the Signal Herald really kind of knew what I was going to say in advance. And you know, I just laid a, laid a number of facts bare about where we were, where we're heading and so forth. And it was, it was a pretty much a stunned, stunned reaction because it turned out that they ended up deep sixing the conference. They didn't actually publish very much on it. There was two articles that came out. One, which was the premier saying that to get more housing supply in the country, you've got to build, up, build apartment blocks. And the other was that Sydney has overlooked for food and the food here is fantastic, although a bit overpriced. Right. And that was it. And after that, it, it became a bit of a cult hit and a number of interviews kind of followed and it's, it's now sort of bubbling up uh, in terms of what I said. And um, I, think, I think it kind of, the, the things I talked about in that speech hit a nerve with a lot of people because it's very hard today in a world of 500 word articles in, you know, in the media, you know, driving the Google ad click machine to really construct a coherent narrative about what is going on. You'll see one article, one topic, and another article, another topic. In 500 words, you can only get one idea across and, and to actually string together a very complex issue is very difficult. So I think I brought a few of those things together in the speech. Well, as I say, you could hear a pin drop in that room. And, um, I was blown away by what you did because I followed this very closely and still I've sat there mouth wide open at just how bad things have got. And I left Australia back in 2009. So all that period of change has happened in my absence. And I think that makes it 
all the more noticeable when I go back. Uh, you know, I've got a daughter down there, so I go down to see her every year. And so I, I notice it because it, you have these big, long gaps between visits and the change happens to a much greater degree when it's not incremental every day. So you know, your, your speech was called The Great Australian Scream. And uh, what I'd love to do is just give you the floor to lay out as much of that speech as you'd like or you think is poignant or, or you remember because it, it must be a bit of a blur. It's been so kind of popular since then. And then um, once you yield the floor back to me, I'd love to dig into it with you because there's just so much in there. And rather than have me trying to guide you to little places of it, I'm sure it's so clear in your mind right now that this, the sensible thing is to just let you tell us about it. So the greatest grand scream is a riff on the greatest Australian dream, which is a very common uh, narrative in politics in, in Australia about owning your own home and how it's become incredibly unaffordable in this country. Now, this country is very much a, a very simple economy. In terms of exports, we export dirt to China, which is in the form of iron ore, to build apartments over there, some of which uh, are unoccupied for some periods of time because they're driving GDP. We export dead trees in the form of coal to power the construction of those apartments and to uh, power the power in Japan in the wake of Fukushima while the directors were, were uh, left idle. We export gas from those dead trees in the form of LNG and gold. And these are commodities for which we are price takers, not price makers. And generally speaking, they've been trending up over time, although recently a number of them have come off the boil quite significantly. And Outside of that, you know, and a wing and a prayer, Australian politicians have basically driven the economy for decades and through successive governments, through you know, a very form of lazy and, you know, I like to say, easy, relentless growth, which is just ensuring that house prices go up. And those house prices have just drifted up year after year after year. Over 60 years, it's been one of the biggest booms in housing, uh, house prices really anywhere around the world, which has seen house prices go up effectively 86 times in 60 years. And they've gone up so high right now that they're at astronomical levels, where a house in Sydney, you know, the average house is unaffordable by, by the average person. I mean, socio-economists say that if housing is affordable, you take the median house price and you divide by the median household income, and if it's three times or less, housing is affordable. If it's three to four times, it's unaffordable. Four to five times, it's severely unaffordable. And five times or greater, it's you know extremely unaffordable. And currently, Sydney is 13.3 times and Melbourne is 10 times. Sydney is the second most expensive housing market in the world outside of Hong Kong. And Hong Kong's a tiny little island. It's very beautiful and very dense of the, of the most populous country in the world. And you've got to think to yourself, how can Sydney, which is a very beautiful city, the people are great, the food is great, the, the culture is great, it's a great place in many respects to live, but how on earth would Sydney have the second most expensive housing in the world? In fact, today's newspaper said that the forecast is the house prices will go up in 9% in the next year, so we've 14 and a half times. How can that possibly make sense? And if you look at the country, I mean, it's not because... We're making, we're having more babies. I mean, there's a thing known as the replacement rate where every female on the planet needs to have 2.1 children in order to maintain the population. Australia, like many Western economies, has got a low birth rate, about 1.6, and 
haven't been above 2.1 since 1975 or so. It's not because wages are growing rapidly. It's not like it's Silicon Valley where, you know, Facebook goes public and 7,500 people become millionaires simultaneously and everyone rushes out and buys a house. Um, you know, wage growth is actually in, it's in reverse gear, the fastest it's been in history at the moment with the official inflation rate at 7% and wage growth at 3.3%. When everyone knows inflation is actually not at 7%. So you look around, you your rent's going up 15 to 25%. You know, energy bills going up 25, 30%. In fact, in some places, 50%. Australia Post is uh, increasing prices by 10%. I, I make a joke about the state down the pub index, which is, you know, I go down to my local pub and, um, you know, the beers now cost $12, $13, $14. You know, last year, I remember the steaks cost $38. And, it, and I wrote my article uh, in preparations for the speech and they were, they were $48. And then a, w- a week after I kind of gave the speech, uh, a pepper steak was $56 and they charged me $2 for the so- extra for the sauce. And then I was down at the sheaf the other day and it's now $70. So everyone knows inflation is not running at 7%. So you've got all these costs they're inflating across the board in terms of inflation. So we're not making, having any more babies when, you know, um, wages are firmly in, in, in negative gear. So why would Sydney have second most expensive housing in the world and why would Melbourne be up there? In fact, all the major Australian capital cities and um, areas, in fact, are somewhere around the top 20 of the um, International Housing Affordability Survey that Demographia publishes for unaffordability. And the answer is because the path of relentless growth that uh, Australian politicians have taken up successive governments has been is to have world-leading immigration. And to give you a feeling of kind of where that is in terms of world-leading, I mean, in the last 12 months, we brought in about 400,000 people. And 400,000 people is about the size of the city of Canberra, which is the capital of, of the country. And we're at a population of 26 million people. So it's actually an extreme number of people uh, coming into the country. And that has set up a bit of a cycle in terms of keeping house prices relentlessly trending up because we've been nowhere near able to build as many houses. I mean, at the moment, it's something like 1,300 people per day uh, is the level at which the population is growing. And that's mostly migration. It's about well over 1,000 per day coming in through, through overseas migration. And that requires us to build somewhere around 340, 350 houses a day. And Sydney is struggling to build 70. And this is a, this is a city which has been on a multi-decade boom in house building. In fact, in the lead up to the 2000 Olympics in Sydney, we had a massive housing boom for building apartments and so forth. And there's a funny index out there called the Ryder Levitt Bucknell Index, which tracks cranes around the world. And in Australia right now, as of the last quarter, there's something like 868 cranes operating with 365 of them operating in Sydney. And if you look at a Sydney like New York, there are 10. And I think Chicago's got 14. I think San Francisco's got 17. But, but they've had been on a ridiculous home building binge for a long period of, of, of time with the fourth highest country in the OECD for home building. Uh, and we've been flat chat. And, and in fact, the rate at which we're getting approvals through and actually building houses is starting to drop. Yet, the response from the government is to, you know, to keep bringing in more people. And in fact, the, the current government under Albanese 
has recently just turned every single tap open to increase the numbers as much as possible. Because I think what they've done is they've looked at they've looked at kind of where the banks are, and ostensibly the banks are, you know, pretty good results and so forth. But they're completely up to their gills with residential mortgages. I mean, when the GFC came around, you had bubbles being blown in the US market, the UK market, Spain, Portugal, Ireland, and so forth. And you know, there were some housing bubbles that burst around the world with the GFC. With Australia, we doubled down. We increased the number of incentives to really keep the market afloat. And in fact, there was, a, there was an emergency note, I think from Treasury, the RBA, that said we have to do it at all costs. So we're at the point now where Australian hustle debt is somewhere around 211% of the GDP. And we're twice as indebted as the Americans, which sounds really funny from an Australian's perspective. When you normally think of America, you think of a country awash with debt and credit cards, but we are well beyond that. And we're reaching right now, effectively, a logical conclusion of all these costs. Because what actually happened is the root of all evil in this country is basically extraordinary high price. And that feeds into the input cost of business. It feeds into requiring extraordinarily high wages. We actually have the highest casual wage in the world, which was $21.38, which has now been raised to $23.23. And even at the highest casual wage in the world, workers can afford less than 1% of listings that are currently available on the housing real estate classified sites. So you're at this point now where you've been on this incredible run with land costs that feeds into wage problems and you also feeds into the cost of everything around. And as a result, if you look at the household budget, it's really a breaking point. 62% of renters in the country are in rental stress, which is defined as net outgoings greater than incomings. You know, 48% of shoulders in this country are mortgage stress. In New South Wales, 70% of renters are in rental stress. And in young families, 86% of young families are in rental stress. You're at the point now where Math doesn't work out anymore in terms of the ability for the household to afford anything. And one thing that struck home, I watched The Big Short not so long ago, and there was a really poignant moment in that where Steve Carell's in a strip club and he's talking to a stripper and she's you know, talking, you know, it's, it's obviously about the GFC. And, and she, she says, we just got five houses in a condo. And that was kind of a pivotal moment in the morning in the movie where, where you know, these, these loans were written at, uh, you know, typically with what's called an arm adjustable rate mortgage, which were written at, you know, 2% or 3% during the GFC when they kept you know, the rates down and they exploded two or three times higher. That was a pivotal moment where committee walked out and said, let's short it. It was, um, it was Iceman making $7 billion. And you just look at the Australian market and the parallels are very, very, very clear. Almost every day in the media, you know, either Fairfax media or the news limit media, there's an article about a, a train driver that has a property portfolio of $15 million across 20 homes or a McDonald's worker or someone who's unemployed or what have you. And it just, the parallels are just so stuck because during COVID, $394 billion from memory of mortgages were written fixed rate at the rates as low as 1.95%. $350 billion of them are coming off this year. Uh, in fact, the, the, the big quarter is this quarter, the June quarter, was 17% of the 350 billion are being reset, not being reset at three or four percent. Um, they're being reset significantly higher. In fact, the, the mortgage rates coming out right now are kind of sevens, eights, pushing nines or higher, depending on what type of borrower you are. And I just think the parallels are so clear that, you know, adjustable rate mortgages coming up, coming off in 2008 in the, in the US and, and likewise in Australia with 
low fixed interest rate mortgages combined with you know, inflation kind of out of control. And the RBA is raising rates. Australia's at full 1.1%. It's behind the UK, it's behind Canada, and it's behind the US, which are up to five, five and a quarter. And rates are going to keep going up. I think we're at a point where we've got the explosive lift in costs um, through both mortgages increasing as well as inflation increasing. I think you're reaching a point where the math doesn't work out anymore. And it's only being propped up by immigration. And the, and the demographics of immigration have changed quite dramatically because for a long time, it was dominated by China. And while China's still a very high percentage of migrants coming into the country, the demographics are now t- are turning to more emerging markets like uh, Nepal and Colombia and so forth, where you know the people coming in, I don't think, have the financial wherewithal capacity to be able to prop the market up as much as the Chinese were. Although, ironically, it's been illegal for some time for Chinese to own property overseas and also send more than $50,000 a year old. That's been skirted everywhere from Vancouver to Auckland into apartment blocks and so forth. So, you know, there's, there's quite a quite a big picture here in terms of what's going on. And at the same time, we've let, let manufacturing fall apart. I mean, manufacturing as a percentage of gross value added is about five and a half, six percent 6%, which is on par with a financial haven like Luxembourg or Botswana, where you can go, you know, see cheetahs. 1995, Australia used to do things like make cars and steel and and so forth. Now it ranks 91st in the Harvard Economic Complexity Scale, which is a measure of how complex or sophisticated the products that your country produces are. It's dropped 40 places uh, since then. So we're behind sort of Guatemala and Laos and Kenya and so forth and continues to drop. And I just think we're at the point now where country is is really going to get into crisis where, you know, you look at the banks, you look at the banks and, you know, the financial results that have come out quite recently are, are good, right? Ostensibly, they're better run banks than many banks around the world. But when you look at a bank like the Commonwealth Bank, which is our largest bank, which has a larger market capitalization than Goldman Sachs, you've got to wonder yourself, does that actually make sense? And then you, you look at the Commonwealth Bank and the numbers are pretty good. They've got 600 and $39 billion of residential mortgages. They're far more exposed to residential mortgages than the American banks. I mean, back in the GFC, the Australian banks were twice as exposed to residential mortgages than the American banks, three times the British banks, uh, four times the banks in Hong Kong, and that's for the most expensive property market in the world. And so it's a Commonwealth Bank has $639 billion worth of mortgages, about $150 billion worth of business lending, about $17 billion worth of consumer finance. And you go, okay, well, there are also a lot of parallels here between Silicon Valley Bank and the Australian banks. Because if you look at Silicon Valley Bank, which was the dominant banker to the U.S. technology sector, the banking about 50% of the U.S. technology industry, business was pretty good. I mean, in about three or four years, their deposits went from $60 billion to about $190 billion. They were awash with cash. And so they had to figure out ways, you know, and then that's, that's obviously on the liability side of the, of the balance sheet. So they've got to figure out, okay, where well, can we lend the money to? And yeah, there's only so much you can lend to cash burning startups or the technology industry. So they decided to take 80 billion or so and stick it into uh, mortgage-backed securities and I think another 10 billion and stick it into T-bills, 10-year T-bills. So at that 92 billion in you know, so 10-year securities for with an average yield of about 1.56%. And then what happened was there were a couple of quarters since May of last year, May, May of last year, you had the crypto crash in the US and then you had the tech wreck. And so venture capital funding pulled back quite strongly. It's actually 
you know, we're running escrow.com. We sell a lot of domain names. We do about half a billion dollars worth of domain names, which are kind of a fourth indicator of sort of US venture capital economic activity because a startup will get funded and, you know, the first thing we want to do is get a good domain. So they've got a, yeah, a free kick forever with their marketing costs being cheaper. That venture capital funding really withdrew, I think, it dropped about 35%. So it's a very quick retraction happening about May or June. And as a result, these cash burning technology businesses, because yeah, even if you're publicly listed, the model is to burn cash and try and knock the lights out with revenue growth. You know, they drew down the cash balances at Silicon Valley Bank you know, a little bit deeper and a little bit longer than, than expected. And it just led, led to a bit of a solvency crisis where they had to kind of sell off parts of their, you know, their, their, their actual securities for a $22 billion loss. And then that led effectively to a bank run when, when a couple of the VCs panicked and told their portfolio companies to withdraw. Now, I think there are a number of parallels here with the Australian banks in the fact that while business is good, right, and there's 400,000 people a year coming into the country and all of them need a bank account, and so they bring some money in, not the $60,000 they're supposed to bring in, but they bring some money in to fund themselves, uh, and that's capitalizing the banks because business deposits have been dropping a little bit sometimes, that we could be heading into a recession. I know that the twos, tens curve in Australia is inverted. There's the twos, fives, and so forth. So, cat of recession globally, you know, people pull back on their spending and, and defaults go up and, and, and so forth, right? So, while do look good right now, the Australian bank's very good. And we do have a bit of a flywheel here. I mean, there's, there's something about our economic architecture we probably listeners don't know about with Australia, and that's we've got compulsory superannuation. And so, this is like the mandatory pension scheme, and that's running at about 10.5%. So, what actually happens is every month, um, 10.5% of the Australian wage bill compulsorily gets paid by the employer into, into super. Now, of that superannuation, 16% of that gets directly invested into property and about 23% of it gets um, invested into Australian stocks. Now, the Australian stock market is pretty thin in terms of diversity. The big four banks and Ori Bank, making five banks, are about 23% roughly of the stock market. So what actually happens every month is that 10.5% of the Australian wage bill flows into superannuation and effectively that results in 5% buying up bank stocks of the big five, right, uh, every month to capitalize them. And that's why we've got these very, very, very large capitalized market caps for the Australian banks. So that increases their ability to lend, but there's not much to lend to in this country because we've got a very, you know, as I said before, 91st in the world in terms of economic complexity. So what are they lending to? They're lending to more mortgages and while things are good right now because immigration so far has kind of kept things afloat to an extent and governments have been fully prepared to throw the kitchen sink and everything else at immigration to keep it up there could be a situation where maybe the demographic nature of um, people coming in changes and they're not as wealthy as the chinese were when they're coming in and things go into tough times and the house prices are so astronomically expensive i mean the average house price here at the moment is about $1.2 million, right? The average wage in Sydney is about $94,000. So it's mathematically impossible for the average person to pay for the average house. And in fact, just lately, there's been what look, looks like a bit of a blow-off top happening in house prices where people are. It's getting so high that people are panicking. And what I mean by that is there was a house that sold just recently in the last two weeks, three weeks in a place called Erskineville. Now, Erskineville's a working-class suburb, right? It's not an affluent suburb by any means. It's a working-class suburb. It's close to the city. It's about six kilometers from the city. 
Um, but that house sold for $4.2 million on a 203 square meter block of land. That's not a very big block of land and it's in a working class suburb. And that's what that, that something like 46 times gross average wage. How could that possibly make any sense? And then you look at Bellevue Hill, which is a very affluent suburb. It's not the wealthiest suburb, but it's a very affluent suburb. It's a suburb where you might expect, you know, a, a doctor or a lawyer to live and a house sold there last weekend for 15.2 million on a 700 square meter block. And the house did not have fantastic build quality. It wasn't a fantastic house by any means. It was just an average house in the middle of Bellevue Hill for $15.2 million, which is 160 times the average wage. So you, you look at this and you go, the math doesn't work out anymore, right? So the banks might have a problem where they've got default correlation, right? Which is exactly one of the drivers for the, for the GFC in the US where you've just got, it runs up to the gills in debt. Households are 211% to GDP in terms of household debt. You've got a changing mix in immigration. You've got, in Sydney, 62% of household income, which is two people, is required to service a mortgage, right? And that's with interest rates where they are now, which are the policy rates of the 0.1. Back in 1982, when interest rates were 17%, it only took 44% of household income to service the mortgage when interest rates were at 17%, right? That's the policy rate. And rates are going to keep going up. And 44% is still pretty high because I think it should be about 20% for housing. So you kind of look at it and you kind of go, could there be a situation where you've got default correlation on residential mortgages and there's very, very high concentration risk in the loan book for these banks? Now, at the moment, they are reasonably well capitalized in terms of deposits. I mean, North Bank, for example, 75% backed by deposits, which is a very different story from the global financial crisis where effectively the banks were completely and utterly reliant upon foreign funding. They were effectively became insolvent. The government had to come and, and guarantee them with their AAA credit rating at, at a cost. But there could be a situation where, you know, just like Silicon Valley Bank, things go a bit deeper and a bit longer than expected and balances get drawn down. And gosh, the Chinese students see uh, all these articles that are going online about how it costs, three, you know, for $300 a week, the only place a Chinese student could find to rent near near university was um, a place where she had to pitch a tent in the living room, you know, in a share house. There was this ad there actually the other day in the paper for um, place to rent. It, the bond was five hundred and twenty dollars. It was one hundred and thirty dollars a week, and it was a picture of a backyard where you could pitch a tent. And the owner said, "Well, yeah, we can we can negotiate Wi-Fi and power and access to toilets." It's 56 kilometers from the city, right? So, so I just, just, I just look at it and there's just so many parallels right now. Now, government intervention can kick the can down the road a very long time, it turns out. I mean, in 2017, I wrote an article called Australian, The Australian Economy is a House of Cards, where I looked at this and I said, the numbers just look like they don't, they're starting to not add up. Like, it's, it's just extreme, right? And it's a lot of, very much the same narrative I'm talking about today. But, you know, that was six years ago. And things now, you know, it kind of feels like we're past overtime and we're into well into injury time. And you just wonder that how does it all add up if 62% of the household income is required to service the mortgage? And last week it said in the paper that 15% goes into transportation costs and then you've got to pay for healthcare and school fees and what have you. At some point, it's all going to break. And 
I just get this feeling it's going to be fairly soon. Matt, that was beautifully done. And I have to say, yeah, have a drink of water, my friend. You've, you've earned it. You know, it's funny, listening to that, that, the hardest thing to do is to not interrupt because there's all these places I want to take you down and you, and you did a phenomenal job of actually answering just about every question I had along the way before I got to it. So, so kudos to you. But let's dig into some of this because it's... Um, like you, I've been talking about this for, for some considerable time and the numbers have been unworkable for a number of years now. Uh, they've just gotten more unworkable. Obviously, the thing that we didn't have on the other side of this holding the RBA's feet to the fire was inflation. You know, they, they could maintain what for Australia were extraordinarily low rates. You know, we came into GFC with rates in Australia in sort of 7 7.5%. People forget that. That was a much more common rate of interest in Australia. So it makes sense that if you take a group of people who are used to having the base rate at 7% and you take it down to essentially zero, you're going to see exactly what happened happen. But I think you're right. I think we are at the point where the rubber meets the road and these 800,000 mortgages that are resetting this year are resetting and will incorporate some 10 rate hikes. So what does this look like? When this does start to fall over, because it's, there's been a few kind of false alarms before, and, the, and as you say, the government have always come up with something. I noticed yesterday, I think it was, the, the CBA have cut the interest rate stress test for borrowers from 3% higher to 1% higher. You know, the banks are equally desperate to find people to lend to to keep this thing going. But when this wobble starts to become something more dangerous, what do you think that looks like? Well, spending is obviously going to pull back, and there's been a a whole bunch of numbers on the papers about that already happening. I think there'll be a lot of government intervention. I mean, I think, I think the serviceability buffer that the Commonwealth Bank, where it's cut it from 3% to 1%, I mean, what could possibly go wrong there? I mean, it's heading yeah. towards ninja loans at this point. They're kind of setting themselves up to say, well, look, we're, we're doing something to kind of help with affordability by not making it so hard for people to, to borrow. And then that's kind of a good preface to try to get the government to do something. There's a question of how much capacity the government will have this time around, because the numbers are pretty astronomical. There's about $1.5 trillion worth of mortgage debt in this country. And, um, you know, from the, from the federal government, federal government's got a trillion dollars of debt, the state government to link up houses, for example, in New South Wales have been this huge um, spending binge, building um, a metro line. And um, they're currently now $187 billion in debt, which at the current the last report, they said they're paying the debt out 5.2%. Paying six point eight billion dollars in interest in a couple of years per annum, which is more than what they collect from property taxes, land taxes, yeah. casino tax, pokies tax, healthcare levies combined. So there are still a number of things they can do with intervention. They can still try and tap that immigration lever as much as they can. They can really start winding back a number of the controls on new land availability and various incentives to build by giving you know, allowing overbuilding. And um, last week they said that they're going to allow new building much smaller apartments, you know, social housing and student housing and so forth. So they, they can really cram it in at the density. And they've increased the um, accessibility for subsidies to government uh, housing programs, such as deposit schemes and so forth. Uh, it's actually quite comical. The, one of the latest things they've done is increase the group of people that can apply for a subsidy to not just the family, not just the extended family with the cousins, but also two friends. <laughs> I don't know, don't know which two friends, but two, two other friends. Look, I don't know. We've had such a long, easy path for relentless growth in this country. We've had just 
it was a hundred and something quarters of economic growth. Nobody in this country actually knows what tough times look like yeah. in a way, right? When the global financial crisis, I think we were, we were one of the, the only economies in the world that was up, where I think we were about half a percent or something, uh, wherever else, everyone else had the ability to kind of deflate the housing markets and they kind of did, we just continued. And, and so nobody knows what it looks like in this country, not the politicians, not the last government, the government before, like, like nobody knows what, what it looks like. But if you draw the parallels and you just kind of look what has happened in the US and the UK and Europe and so forth, we think that it's probably a good chance it'll look a lot like that. It'll look a lot like default correlation, right? Yeah. Mathematicians can carve up those mortgage-backed securities anywhere they want and tranche them up and log them off in CDOs or whatever and, and kind of try, you know, try, try and prove that they're good investments. And in fact, I'll tell you a funny story actually about that. A funny story is I've, uh, there's, a, there's a private wealth guy that, that's um, been kind of hounding me in the last couple of weeks to try and become a client of his. And he sent me this investment actually last week and it was a private debt. It pays 12%. I said, what's in it? And he said, oh, it's 48% private equity and 52% residential mortgages. Right, right. And I said to him, hang on a sec. I said, first of all, how's it paying 12%? Because I presume your bank is making a fee on this and the originator is making a fee on it and it's residential mortgages, Right. Yeah, and then it's private equity. I mean, how bad are these mortgages? Right, what's how much yeah. they're paying? And private equity, obviously, they can't IPO their companies because the market's closed. So that they're trying to find someone to buy it off. And there's, and then going to to find it worth for for residential mortgages is kind of weird. I mean, it's a very very big market. I don't see yeah. typically a market. I think you go to you go to, 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 to venture funding or you know something with domain expertise or some operational you know or relationships that you know, okay, I'm, I, I'll best this because I know the I know the industry, but. I don't know. I, I just, I mean, the Australian market is a bit different from the US market in the fact that in many circumstances in the US, you can hand back the keys, right? In Australia, Correct. you can't do that. But I think on a practical basis, they're going to have to let people, I think the banks can't evict people from their homes because politically that's very untenable. So there's going to have to be something, but I, I, I don't know. I don't know where it's going to end up, but I think it's probably going to end up with a lot of money printing and a lot of, you know, deterioration in the credit rating of the country. And I think, um, there could be some form of banking crisis and I don't know the capacity of the RBA to be able to bail it out given the fact that the RBA is effectively in negative equity already because right. they lost $50 billion in Australian government bonds which went the wrong way with the government hiked. So, well, the RBA hiked. So I don't know, but I, th I just think you just draw the parallels around the world and just think something is got, it's not going to be good here. And I think because we've kicked cans so much further down the road, I think it's going to be able to see it worse than, than in other places where this is happening. Well, you know, the interesting thing when you look at Australia is just how tied to the same mast every stakeholder in this thing is. You know, it's not the same as other countries because obviously you've got the mortgage holders and they're underwater. And, you know, if you're a Macquarie banker, you're earning a really good salary and living on the North Shore, you are stretched in your mortgage, which is not the way it should be because if you want to live on that North Shore near all the good schools, you're going to have to take a mortgage out that's much bigger than you really want to or in many cases can afford. So this is not just people on that extremely high minimum wage who are going to struggle. This is everybody because everybody that has bought a house, this great Australian dream, is way over their skis. Then you've got the banks who are completely hostage to this situation and as you've laid out so beautifully, their books are an absolute time bomb waiting to happen. But then you have the government who cannot possibly allow the housing market to fail or at least have to do everything they possibly can to avoid that. 
So they're all strapped to the same mask. And ultimately, the only real thing that one might think has a possibility of saving them is to magically find some true organic growth is for China to come roaring back and uh, pay an awful lot more for some of the things that Australians dig out the ground and stick on ships to them. The more I look at this, the more I don't see a way out of it and the more you understand that when Australia does get its first recession in 30 plus years, you realise it's going to be an absolute catastrophe. And so I'm bewildered when I talk to friends of mine in Aussie that Two things. One, the understanding of this is so scant. So few people seem to get this. And two, the idea that she'll be right. You know, property always goes up and people have been warning about this for such a long time and look where we are. House prices are much higher than they were. There's just this sense of whistling past the graveyard that nobody wants to even entertain the idea that all it's going to take is that recession and volumes of people losing their jobs who are absolutely unable to pay their mortgages and this whole house of cards comes tumbling down. Well, one third of people in this country own their own home. So they've been really unaffected by mortgages going up and they've been feeling pretty good about themselves and they've become multi-millionaires. In fact, Australia has a very high concentration of millionaires per capita around the world. It's, It's very, very high. And then one third in this country have a mortgage and for many years, you felt very good, right? I mean, house prices continually went up and then rates kind of came down and, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's been the, the smarter, I, I've been lectured so many times <laughs> at the pub by all sorts of people about you should be this house and that house or whatever. And you just go, it just doesn't make any sense. I mean, I remember, I, I remember this funny thing. I, mean, I was at the dentist. It was a couple of years ago, but I was at the dentist and there was an old people magazine there. And I opened it up as you're sitting there waiting for the dentist and I'm flicking through the pages and it said, John Travolta has extended his $3 million mansion to park his Boeing 707. I thought $3 million to park a Boeing jet because he lives on a, on a, a runway. I just thought that would buy in Australia a two-bedroom apartment. Right, right. Or, or, or in Erskineville, a working-class suburb, buy a 200-square-meter house. Right? I mean, it, it's just, it's unbelievable. And, and, you, you know, and so one-third of people also rent. And then you, then you look at, you know, you mentioned... Um, you know, it's affecting everyone. The average wage is, you know, $94,000. A lawyer or an accountant or a GP might make, you know, a good job. This is like a, you know, top job, $200,000, $300,000 income. They can't afford these houses. Right, <laughs> like, right. The only way you can afford to buy one of these houses is by kind of, you know, trading around and sort of trade, trading up in a way, but transactional costs are very high. Stamp duty is very high. And so, I mean, a lot of it, actually is coming in from overseas and a lot of it's hot money. There's been quite a long-running scandal globally around the hot money coming out of China where the original, you know, hot money was going through Macau, then it was going through the British Columbia casinos and the Australian casinos and it was going through Bitcoin at 1.98% of volume in Bitcoin was money getting out of China. There's a wonderful website called fiatleak.com you could watch where, you know, on-ramps and the off-ramps Bitcoin and then China cracked down on that and then it went to smurfing. So you have you know, multiple families sending $50,000 to a bank in Hong Kong and they're getting the money out and so on. So there's this you know, Australian property in, in a way, just like Vancouver property, just like all property has been a Swiss bank account. Swiss bank account. In fact, Transparency International rates Australia the worst money laundering market in the world because there's very little transparency. Unlike many markets in the world, if you want to try and buy a house, 
the average price in Australia is contact agent. Like they don't right. they advertise right. the house, but they won't say, they won't say what the price is. Why is that a low number, eh? Well, there's a whole thing about underquoting and and they're trying to make it illegal if someone says a price and the price ends up being higher, which is kind of weird in a market economy. But then when the house sells, you're not required to actually publish what the price was, although a lot of the prices do get out because of various gossip columns and set the other, and some people just do make it public. But um, but also the beneficial holders of their property uh, not required to be um, kept in registers, and the participants in a real estate transaction are generally not required to KYC people. So it's been a fantastic place to park money, and that's been a big driver at the top end of, of price action. But truly. It's just, it's just, it's just crazy. I mean, you just look at the cost of everything, and you just try and add it all up and figure out how it works and whether, how much further it can, it can continue. There's a guy called Martin North from Digital Finance Analytics yes. who published wonderful charts on mortgage stress and rental stress. And the, you know, 20 years ago, both mortgage stress in the country and and rental stress, which is defined as outgoings rather than incomings, they were both less than less than 15 percent of households were in either rental stress or mortgage stress, and now in <laughs> Yes, the Wales, it's 70% are in rental stress in Yes, the Wales, 86% of young families in the country are in rental stress. And ironically, of the migrants coming in that the government's using to kind of prop everything up, prop up GDP, not on a per capita basis, but prop up GDP, 69% of new migrants in this country are also in rental stress. I mean, basically what's happening is the Australian, average Australian can't afford to work in a cafe or hospitality or so forth on minimum wage, even though it's the highest minimum wage in the world, $23.23. And so what we've been doing is we've been importing a lot of people, 40% of them going to accommodation food, beverages and so forth. We trick them for a while to work in a cafe. They figure out they can't make it work either. And then they go flee to the country. And then we've been on a massive home building binge to try and bring that housing cost down. But because costs have got so astronomically high, What's actually happening is we've been unable to increase the number of tradesmen in right. you know, New South Wales. The number of labourers has been at 300,000 for about a decade, unable to budge because every time the costs go up, they, the tradesmen flee to Queensland or the country or some other place, which is cheaper to live. So we haven't been able to increase the number of builders. And now we've got insolvencies at a fairly high number. 1,700 construction companies have become insolvent in the last 12 months. Yeah. And that, that's going up. All these home builders going bust because they, they get into these fixed price contracts to sell the houses and then they... Yeah, materials costs have gone up and labor costs have gone up. And um, yeah, it's crazy, t- crazy times. Well, you've got the Olympics too, which is obviously sucking tradies up to Queensland. That's exactly right, because the government pays more money. They yeah. About the stadiums. You know, I mean, the other thing, obviously, which we haven't talked about, but which is a, a similar phenomenon just about everywhere else in the developed Western world is car financing, you know, because everybody in Australia has got a nice car and cars are expensive in Aussie. You know, I remember when I moved down there from the US, I couldn't believe the prices down there were probably double what they were in the US then, but everybody had a nice car. And obviously that's because they were financing them. And uh, I suspect there's going to be an enormous amount of kind of used two, three-year-old Mercedes and BMWs and all kinds of really nice cars up for sale at crazy prices fairly soon, given the way the rates are going. Whilst cars in Australia are extremely expensive because we've got all these taxes that are protecting an industry that no longer exists. So we've got all these tariffs and luxury car taxes and so forth that the government introduced many, many years ago to try and keep Holding the float, you know, back yeah. in 1995, you know, we'd make cars and other things and um, it just became too expensive due to input costs, primarily being land, which drove wages. So wages became too expensive and, you know, had China competing and everywhere else competing. And, um, but we still have the taxes. So we have, we do, we no longer have a car industry, but 
cars are incredibly expensive here with with all these car taxes. Uh, I think it's about one and a half billion a year that I think the government generates in, in these taxes, protecting an industry that no longer exists. And yeah. it, it's it's quite it's quite funny because one of the wealthier classes in this country are tradesmen. You know, you try and get a plumber out to fix something in your house, they might be charging you $185 an hour, right? Yep. And they're all drive really high-end utes. They're all, you know, all the extras are on them. It pays more than, than potentially being a software engineer in many circumstances, right? It's, yeah. it's, it's a very, very, very strange economy from that perspective. So mate, let's, let's talk a little bit about the reaction to that speech because it did go viral. I couldn't share it fast enough or often enough. I just thought it was fantastic. But let's talk about the reaction you've had to it, both from the general public and perhaps from policymakers or anyone within the, the kind of... Because you, you know if there's a story like this out there, at least the opposition are going to want to get a hold of you because it's a great story for them. Well, yeah, so it is, it is kind of going viral. I mean, there's been a couple of podcasts and, and uh, you know, other interviews that happened off the back of it. Ironically, News Limited carried it three times on the homepage. Um, it was there for short periods of time as the banner story, but I think before the editors could look at it and kind of pushed off the, off the top of the website pretty quickly. I mean, yeah. so yeah, I, mean, I, th- I think what it's done is I think a lot of people in the world, you know, if, if, if you've got, got very narrow media in this country, you've really got two dominant media sources outside of Twitter, which is now becoming increasingly a very valuable source of actually cutting through all the narrative and figuring out what's really going on. Um, it's very, very hard to string together what's going on. And I think it, it, I think it has clicked. It's, it's certainly going viral. I just actually checked out a YouTube interview I did with um, with a up and coming uh, online media company, the average views on the videos are two hundred to three hundred to four hundred, and mine was seventy eight thousand. And yeah. the comments go off the page, hundred thousand comments. So it's, it's certainly hit a nerve, and it's certainly resonating. And I think it, I think, I think this is going to become an albatross around the current Albanese government government's neck because Albanese has gone just doubled down to the extreme. And it's kind of it's kind of funny. You've got. The RBA has has its foot firmly on the brakes, lifting interest rates, and those rates, you know, we're, we're lagging Zealand, which is over five. We're lagging Canada. We're lagging the UK. We're lagging the US. So they're going to go up. And Philip Lowe, who's the governor of the RBA, has kind of been a bit of a scapegoat for all of this because he said back in COVID that um, interest rates would stay effectively at yeah. zero until at least twenty twenty four went into this big hiking cycle chasing, chasing the US because we had to. And he, he's on his way out. In fact, there's been a, a review that's been that's just completed of the way the RBA runs. And it's very clear they're not going to renew his contract. And, and, and increasingly, they're, you know, they're doing things like running polls in the media. They're saying, do you think that Phil Lowe should lose his job or have you? And of course, everyone's saying yes. And so he is increasingly becoming scapegoat. And I think on his way out to retain some level of credibility, he's going to keep raising. So the RBA is, is it's feet on the brakes and then you've got the government who's got its feet on the foot on the accelerator with immigration yeah. and also on the brakes in some regards because it's doing this, all this restructuring of how wages and superannuation and so forth work. So superannuation is going to 12% and they're trying to, uh, they've just increased um, the minimum wage and they're also now pushing like this labor reform to stop labor hire companies, which is going to drive up costs quite significantly for a number of companies like BHP came out just this week and said that their costs are going to go up by one and a half billion dollars this year, which is about five percent, um, because they're going to try and restrict contractors or labour hire firms, etc. And so forth. It's not exactly clear what their policies intend to do. I mean, I actually uh, spoke to, I interviewed a candidate um, uh, this week for a job 
who works uh, at a certain uh, place and um, he told me one of the largest delivery networks in this country is going to shut down. It's for, for a tech company. Um, it's going to shut down their delivery division because the costs to do um, package delivery is going to triple yeah. under, under these reforms. And so they're going to shut down uh, effectively 75,000 drivers because they can't make it work. So it's, it's kind of strange. You've got you know one foot in the brakes of the IBA, one foot in the accelerator and with the government and the government sort of foot in the brakes doing it. So it's, it, I don't know what's going to end up, um, but it's, it, they call it the burnout economy because it's cars spinning in a circle with the accelerator right. and the brakes on. Right. But yeah, we, we saw, and you touched on this earlier, but we saw the numbers out of David Jones uh, a week or so ago. And for people uh, overseas that aren't familiar with Australian kind of department stores, David Jones, I don't know, you may be correct me, but it's, it's kind of a Nordstrom, Nima Marcus type level. You know, it's a high-end department store in, in Australia. And it's been going gangbusters, but they had some results out this week that were absolutely terrible. And, and I think they were so bad so fast that that also seemed to catch a lot of people's attention that maybe now this thing is actually starting to unravel in places and at a pace which people weren't prepared for. Well, I mean, the funny thing about that is that, you know, David Jones is the high-end Nordstrom's equivalent in the country. And, you know, the place where you walk in, there's a white glove of gentlemen playing on the piano right. and you to feel special and you really treat yourself and, and, and so forth. But over the last decade or so, it, in all the high-end retailers, not just, not just David Jones, but across all the high-end retailers, it really feels the quality of goods is deteriorated. You know, if you go into Walmart in the US, for example, they've got contracts where they'll supply you a lower grade of cotton and the fabrics that they produce, you know, so they get the cheapest price. You know, the laundry detergent will be a little bit cheaper grade. I mean, everything's yep. at a lower grade. And, you know, for example, if you go to Argentina, and you go into a, a store and you want to buy a phone. I mean, there's no iPhones there because no one can afford them, right? And I, I have, and I mean, this is kind of anecdotal, but I have felt going into a number of the high-end stores in Australia over time that just the quality of goods just seems to be a lower produced grade, right? Because it's cheaper and it's more affordable. And, you know, it's very stark when you go to the US. When you go to the US and you walk into like a hardware store and you pick up the tools and so forth, significantly higher quality in terms of the, the, the build than you mm-hmm. would find in, in Australian retail. And I, I don't really have any hard data on this other, other than anecdotal, but it does feel like it's it, the quality of products sold is falling away because people can't afford it anymore, you know, because the household budget is tied up with everything else. And David Jones is a classic example of that where you go in there now and and really it's, I've got a friend, actually an ex-girlfriend of mine who supplies cosmetics to David Jones, she goes, it used to be very special and so forth. She feels now that you go in there, it's, you buy the same cosmetics, you can buy in a service station. Um, yeah. And that's happening across the board. Yeah, everyone. Well, look, Matt, we've kind of hit the hour and it's been a fascinating conversation. But before we wrap it up, I know my audience and I know how interested a lot of them are in what's happening in Australia, even if it's, you know, as a canary in a coal mine. So let people know, um, I'll include a link to your terrific um a great Australian Scream piece in the notes for the show, but please, please let people know how they can follow you, how they can get in touch with you, how they can read any of those articles you talked about, because you know this is a story that is probably more important than Australians would like it to be, frankly, because there's an awful lot of people now starting to to keep an eye on Australia as maybe the first domino that topples. The easiest place is to follow me on Twitter. It's Matt underscore Barry, B-A-R-R-I-E on Twitter, and you'll find everything there. 
Fantastic. Beautifully done. Matt, listen, I can't thank you enough for doing this. I just sat back and bathed in all those data points again, like I did the first time, and the impact wasn't lessened for it being the second time I heard it. So I know this is going to um, hit home to a lot of people. So again, thank you for, for taking the time to do this with me. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Abby. Well, hopefully you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. The, the story is a remarkably compelling one, and it's really quite frightening for any of us who have followed the Australian real estate story over the years. As Matt said, you can follow him on Twitter. You'll find him at Matt Barry. Uh, that's Matt underscore Barry, M-A-T-T underscore B-A-R-R-I-E. And the piece um, I referenced, The Great Australian Scream, there will be a link to it in the transcript if you download that from the website. But if you go onto medium.com and search for Matt Barry or The Great Australian Scream, you will find not only the text for the, for the uh, speech, which is fantastic, but also a video of Matt delivering it at the Sydney 2050 Summit. And um, I warn you, the silence is deafening. My thanks to Matt for joining us. I'll be back again with another guest in the very near future. Thanks for listening. Nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets.